first thing I stole. <laughs> Do you? Do you remember the first thing you stole? Yeah. Yeah. See, mine's was a Mars bar from the corner bodega that it's not there anymore. I had lived in that neighborhood my entire life. My family was known, my father, my mother, my brothers, my sister. It, you know, this was back, and I grew up in um, Greenpoint, which is a really Puerto Rican neighborhood until like the late 80s, uh, or uh, the, maybe the, actually it started shifting in the mid 80s and it started to become Polish, and then it started to move to the hipster uh, mecca that it is now. But in that time, it was just a really poor um, Spanish Puerto Rican neighborhood. And I remember it. The reason I think I remember it is because I was no good at it, and I got caught. <laughs> so I got caught stealing this Mars bar. I got caught stealing this Mars bar. And I mean, like, red-handed. Like, hand, you know, like this. Ah, got caught, like, you know, half of the Mars bar in my pocket, that kind of thing, right? But the thing that struck me about getting caught, about um, this Mars bar, was not stealing it or getting caught. In fact, the owner, whose name I don't remember anymore, back when bodegas were actually owned by Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, um, he looked at me. He never told my parents. He looked at me, brokenhearted, and he said, in disbelief, because, you know, my, my, my parents were like hardworking people, and my brother was fantastic, and my sister, I was the black sheep, I guess. And, and he looked at me, he said, no, no, not you. It's as if I came to him and broke his heart. Like, I wasn't just taking from him. I wasn't just stealing from him. I wasn't just breaking one of the rules of the store. I was breaking his heart. And I remember, he just said, no, no. And I remember putting the thing there, and he walked away, and just sort of standing there. I think that's what happens when we sin against God. I don't think that it's such an issue so much of breaking one of God's laws. I think it's an issue of breaking God's heart. We're in a, a series. And this new series is called Resurrecting Faith. It's for all the failures, all the mess-ups, all the screw-ups, all the guys who did it their way and found out that mom was right and their friends were right and God was right and everything else was right. It is, this series is for really, really sinful people like me. And so we've begun the series about talking about how to, how to respond to God after we've sinned. And we're going to continue that. We started in Micah chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. We spent two weeks there. We're probably going to spend two weeks on this chapter right here. It's Psalm 51. But I need you to know, 
that sin is not primarily breaking one of God's laws. It's breaking God's heart. I remember that moment with the, the store owner because I think it fuels all my other sin secrets as well. I don't want to talk to God about my sin because I don't want to see that look on his face, that look that I saw from the, from the store owner, the bodega owner. Isn't it true? It, am I the only one who keeps secrets? Isn't it true? Like, the reason that we keep secrets is because we don't want to see that broken-hearted look in those that we love. It's the reason. It's the reason why you don't tell your kids the real reason for the divorce. You just don't want to see that broken-hearted look on their face. It's the reason why you don't tell your spouse about what really happened during that convention. It's the reason why you don't tell your boss about what you did with the resources. You see, there's this sense where we know we don't want to feel people's disappointment. And so when you and I sin, what we do, and this is not something you had to get taught. This is something you just know intuitively. What we do is we run from God. And there's a hundred ways to run from God, isn't there? I mean, you can run from God by just going, you know what, God, I went to a class. I was in a philosophy class in college, and they said this and that. And, and no real sophisticated person believes in the Bible, really. No real sophisticated person believes in God anymore. That's one way to run from God. Another way to run from God is just to get away from the people who remind you about God. So you know what we do when we sin? We stop coming to a service like this. I promise you that every empty chair here represents someone, at least one, maybe five or six people who have sinned and didn't want to see God's disappointing look, and so they just ran away from anyone who reminds them of the Lord. It's true. And so today we're going to talk about what do we do? How do we pray after we've sinned? I'm not going to be talking to you how to prevent your sin. If you want, you can go into the archives, and I've done 20 years worth of that. What I'm going to talk to you about is after you've blown it, after you've messed up, after you've regretted and ruined everything and caused all sorts of collateral damage, what do you do now? How do you approach an infinitely holy, perfect, and pure God with your shame and your guilt. The good news, of course, is that God has a lot to say about this. But one of the most popular places that we can go to is Psalm 51. I got to tell you the story of Psalm 51 and why it was written so that you can understand. Now, we're going to spend two weeks on this, because there's no way in all creation I'm going to get through all this psalm um, in just one week. So if you still have questions, if you still have, but, but, but my, I, I, I feel like the, you didn't answer all the questions. Good, 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 good. Come next week. 
Come next week and we'll fill out the rest. So, in Psalm 51, what we have is the person of David, King David. Has anybody heard of King David before this moment, before I mentioned him? Okay, for those of you who didn't hear of King David, King David was one of the most glorious kings in all of Israel. He's the second king right after this guy named Saul. And David is a guy after God's heart. He's the white hat. He's the good guy. He's the one that everybody's cheering for. He's our hero. As an aside, can I just say something? You know one of the reasons why I believe in the Bible? It's because the Bible doesn't cover up for its heroes. The Bible tells it how it is with, with the heroes. David is a crazy mess, and we wouldn't know it unless the Bible told us that. But read any other religious, uh, religious literature and let it talk about their heroes. I'm telling you, it's not like this. It's one of the reasons why I believe the Bible. It's because why would the Bible be this honest if it was just trying to control people, if it was just trying to manipulate people? It would, it would have a different story for its heroes. David, one of our heroes. David goes out one day on his rooftop. He looks down because his, his, his castle's higher than everybody else's thing. And so he looks down and he sees, he goes, Holy smokes, he sees a 10, a perfect 10. She's bathing, and he looks at her, and he goes, I'm going to have that. I'm going to create the very first Me Too moment in all of history. Well, it's probably not the first. It's probably the billionth, but the first really popular one, right? This is a Me Too moment on steroids. And what he does is he uses his power and he uses his authority to abuse this poor woman. He uses his power and he uses his authority to abuse this poor woman. He goes to one of his servants and he goes, see that chick right there? And the guy looks at her and he goes, yeah. He goes, bring her to me. I want to have her. And then in this subtle way, the Hebrew scriptures are so subtle, the, 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 the servant, who's not supposed to do anything but say, yes, sir, and go, he says, um, do you mean Uriah's wife? Now, the reason why he says Uriah's wife, now, come with me. Again, this is really, really important to the story. David is a guy who hasn't, he wasn't born into kingship. He was a little shepherd boy, and then he was like a warrior who uh, was in Saul's army. Remember the first king I told you about? Saul's army. David comes in. David actually uh, is like a general in his army and fights battles for Saul. Saul gets jealous of David and tries to kill him because he thinks that David is trying to usurp the throne, usurp the throne. So David runs for his life for like a decade and a half. And then he has these guys that are around him. They're his personal bodyguards. These are his not only closest friends, he literally owes his life to these guys. They have literally risked their lives to protect him. 
There's about 37 of those guys who are the closest to David. The ones who have eaten with him, bled with him, fought with him, risked his life for him, who have loved him, have been loyal to him, have pursued him, have made sure that no harm at the cost of their own skin, no harm would come to David. And one of those 37 guys is named Uriah. It's his boy. Um, I, you know, King, I'm sorry. Do you, do you mean Uriah's wife? Yeah, that's the one. Go get her for me. He gets her. And everything that you think would happen in a horrible, disgusting, rape-filled moment like that happens. It's horrible. What he does is unspeakable. He uses her, says, go home. She goes home, a couple of weeks pass, and she says, tell the king I'm pregnant. Well, here's the problem. Uriah has been out to war fighting battles for David, risking his life for David. And it's been out there for months. There's no explaining this one away. So David, you know what David does, right? He does what we do. He goes before God and says, God, I've sinned. This is terrible. I can't make this right. I just throw myself at your feet. Because that's what we do, isn't it? Not. David gets an idea. He hatches a plan. David gets a bright thought. And that idea is this. I'll cover it up. Nobody has to know. Have you ever sat in that chair? I can make this go away. There are some people who are going to spend the rest of their lives in jail because they had this idea. I'll cover it up. I'll make this go away. I've sat in this chair so many times, it makes my heart break. Even as I'm preaching this sermon, I think of the radiant sin of my life, the brilliant ideas to cover things up that only caused more harm. Well, David sits in his thinking chair and says, I got this covered. I know what I'm going to do. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fix this. God, don't worry about it. Take a break. I got this. <laughs> Sit this one out. You know what he does. He calls for Uriah. He says, Uriah, under the pretense of tell me everything. Tell me everything about the battle. Give me a report. So Uriah comes back like, like a dutiful soldier. He gives him all of his report, and he shares it with them. David feeds him, gets him drunk, and then goes, hey, Uriah, do me a favor. Why don't you go wash your feet, man? You know what he means by washing his feet. He means, why don't you go home and receive the comforts of home? Wink, wink. Be with your wife. Enjoy yourself. Take a day off. Well, Uriah is drunk, but he's not dishonorable. And it turns out that Uriah drunk is more honorable than David sober because he sleeps on the stairs and never goes home and says, how can I do this when all of my men are in battle? I can't do it. And he shares solidarity with them. David goes, okay, this guy's driving me crazy. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to try it again. Tell me more. 
Tell me more about this terrible thing that happened. And then uh, Uriah explains to him again all the reports of the war. And then he goes, come on, stay for a little bit. It's like, you know, ah, look at the time again. Have another drink, Uriah. Have another drink. Have another drink, Uriah. Have another drink. Hey, Uriah, go home. Bathsheba, get you some. And Uriah does it again. He sits, sleeps on the steps, never goes to her. David then gets back in that chair. And he goes, I know how to fix the thing that I couldn't fix before. So he writes a letter. And he's the king, and so nobody dares opens his letters. He writes the letter, and he puts it in Uriah's hand, puts it in Uriah's hand, and then has David, I mean, has, David has Uriah give it to Joab, the general of the army. He's like the commander. And in the letter, it says, what I want you to do is I want you to put this man where the fighting is hottest, and then I want you to pull back. And I want him to die. It's like that, right? When we sin, how we start inviting others into our web of deceit and evil. Wait, it gets worse. Joab does exactly what he says, and not only does he do exactly what he says, he sends a few days later a note back to David. Hey, David, we lost a bunch of men. You know why? Because you just can't put Joab out there. David lost his life, and there was a bunch of other wives who wept over losing their husbands. Fathers and mothers who wept about losing their sons in war. David gets it, but at the end of the report, hey, we lost this battle, we lost this amount of guys, we lost this series of, of uh, you know, we were outflanked, and all this other stuff. And then he says, at the end, Joab says, oh, and Uriah, your servant, is dead also. David reads it. Gets furious, then reads that last line. He goes, ah, go back to Joab and comfort him. Tell him, hey, man, sword takes this one, sword takes that. Not a ounce of, not a moment where his conscience is stricken. Not a moment. He then, he then marries Uriah's wife. What? A hero, and he is a hero. You gotta understand, a widow in that time is doomed for either prostitution or poverty. There are not many choices for her. The only thing that could happen to her is that another man could come and take the place of her provider. That's what David did. It was a heroic act. He must have loved him so much. Look, he took his wife to be his wife. About a year passes by, the baby's born, and nothing. God speaks to this prophet. His name is uh, Nathan, a um, uh, priest, prophet. Nathan, the prophet, um, speaks to Nathan. And Nathan tells David this story. He says, there were two, I need your help in, in figuring this situation out. There are two people. One is a rich man. He has all sorts of sheep, all sorts of goods, all sorts of stuff. He's very rich. And he receives a guest. 
There's another guy right next door. He's not rich. He's very poor. In fact, he only has one lamb, and he treats that lamb like it's its own daughter. He sleeps with the lamb. He takes care of it. It's like some of y'all with your dogs or your pets. You know how like you, you, know, you let them sleep in the bed, and you have, you know, it's just like a real uh, thing. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying that's what you do. And, and like it's, a, 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 you know, it's, it's, like a, it's, like a per, it's like a member of the family, like, like that, like a pet. And then he says, that, that, that poor man, he only had one ewe lamb. And, and so this guy receives a guest. And rather than entertaining his guest with this, his stuff that he has more than enough of, he goes to that poor man's farm, forcibly takes the ewe lamb, cuts its throat, and serves it to its guest. David is furious when he hears this story, and he's so furious that he can't even recognize his own footprints in the story. Nathan puts his finger in his chest and said, you're that man. David goes from not caring about the things that he's done, only caring about the consequences that he'll have to face, to facing up to his sin. And that's where we find our hero. Now I want to pause here. It's important that we pause here. Because what we're going to read is a story, or what we're going to read is a prayer of confession and a prayer for mercy. And as we read it, if you're like me, you'll go, I can't pray this prayer. You don't know what I've done. Believe me, you don't know what I've done. I'm the worst person in this room. I'm telling you I am. I've done things that are horrible. And so I read this and I go, nah, this one's not for me. But the reason that I took such time to tell you the entire story of David is so that you would know, yeah, this one's for you. This one's for you. This one's for the brokenhearted. This is one for the sinful. This is, the, this is a prayer for those who have sinned, not cared, and sinned the same way again. That's what this one's for. And... If you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, and we got a bunch of you here, and I'm super grateful that you're here, and I, I don't even care why you came. I'm just glad that you're here. And there's a bunch of different, like, motivations for coming here, and I, I just don't care. I'm just glad that you're here. Would you just please consider that the way that Christianity deals with guilt and shame is perhaps a more excellent way than the way you've been taught growing up? The way you've been taught, the way I've been taught, the way our culture teaches us how to deal with guilt and shame is to sweep it under the rug. If not sweep it under the rug, make up for it. So, 
you steal something, you spend a lifetime of giving things back to people. You, you mess around this way, you spend a lifetime of being a straight arrow this way. You stole this, you spend a lifetime of giving back. You see, it's either sweeping under the rug or making up for. And I'm telling you, the Bible knows nothing about that. The Bible knows that you going into a mirror and saying, I'm a good person. I've, I've helped the poor. I've taken care. I've fought about issues of social justice. I am on the right side of history. The Bible knows that there's only so much you can tell that to yourself. The Bible does something totally different than what we're used to. It goes off of our path. The Bible deals with our shame and our guilt head on, not minimizing and in some ways maximizing it so that we might need a savior. Because you and I, we don't need helpers. We need a savior. And so David, in his moment of terrible, terrible clarity, when there's no more excuses, where he can't blame the alcohol and he can't blame the drug, he can't blame the wife and he can't blame the circumstance, he can't blame the boss and he can't blame the kids, in the moment where there's no other blame to be pointed, he prays this prayer. But the thing that underlines the prayer is the truth that I told you before. Sin is not primarily a breaking of God's laws. It's a breaking of God's heart. In essence, when you and I sin, just like David when he sins, and again, we haven't even gotten off of the introduction to the psalm. This is so profound. When we sin, sin is not primarily the breaking of God's law. It's the breaking of God's heart. It's saying these two things to God. God, I know what's best, uh, what is best for me better than you do. And then, so watch this. When we sin, every time you and I sin, we're saying this. God, I know what is best for me better than you do. But we don't stop there. By the way, you can go all the way back to the, um, to the garden of uh, where Adam and Eve, every, the foundation of every sin. Remember what the serpent says to Adam and Eve? He says, you will not surely die. God knows when you partake of this fruit, you, your eyes will be opened. You see, I know better. I know what is best for me better than God. But it doesn't stop there. We say, I want what is best for me more than God. When we sin, 
We're not only saying, I know what is best for me better than God, but we're saying, I want what is best for me more than God. So I'll take it. It'll be mine. God, you want to keep all the joy and the fun and the celebration. I know better for me than you know. Excuse me while I have the next drink. Excuse me while I commit adultery. Excuse me while I steal from work. Excuse me while I cheat on my taxes. Excuse me while I lie to a lover. Excuse me while I manipulate a friend. You know why? Because I know what is best for me better than God, and I want what is best for me more than God. That is the foundation of every sin I've ever committed, and it's the foundation of every sin you've ever committed. So we get to the point of David's text. And there's like no time. <laughs> that was the introduction. <laughs> there's no time. Listen to what he says. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Listen to me. Let's just pause for a second. You and I need to be delivered from our self-centered view of sin. We need to be delivered from our culturally centered view. David needed to understand that the issue isn't avoiding consequences. The issue was avoiding God. And so, he says, have mercy on me. And by the way, that's a, always a good way to start a prayer. God, would you have mercy on me? Would you consider mercy for me? And the good news is that he has a lot, a lot, a lot of mercy. We need to be healed from the way we look at guilt and shame. Not by ignoring it. Not by making up for it. But by having God do his perfect, incredible work in our hearts. But in order to do that, we got to face some things. It was an interesting thing. My son broke his arm years ago. Uh, my older son, uh, my 28-year-old son, not my 8-year-old son. Edwin, he was playing, and he jumped up. You know, he was playing tag. And you know, like when boys play tag, they, they'd rather die than get tagged. He, it was one of those moments where he jumped off of the real high part of the jungle gym thing. And it just didn't go well. Snapped his arm. This is the first time I knew that I found out that you have two bones. Did you know that you have two bones in your forearm? I had no idea. I, have, I found this out during an x-ray. I was like, oh, that's the coolest thing. I had no idea. Well, his snapped clean off. Like, his snapped like a, like if somebody like just had a Ginsu knife and just cut it like that. It was just like snapped it. It was like a clean cut. But one of the things that um, the doctor did that I was most 
upset by is that he had to, in order to make my son's arm better, he had to make it hurt more. So here's what he did. He takes my son's arm and he, like he's moving it, like, like he's literally pulling it apart and then with his fingers feeling it. My son said that the break was nothing in comparison to what that doctor did. But in order to heal the arm, the boy had to go through the pain. Why? Because there was something broken. And if you're really going to heal, you got to go to the root of where the pain is. Beloved, if we're really going to heal, heal from our shame, heal from our guilt, we don't need modern philosophies that will put down our shame. We don't need ideas that will minimize our culpability. We don't need a, psychiat a, a psychiatric evaluation that says all of our root sins are based in sex. Interestingly enough, David sinned against Bathsheba sexually. He sinned against Uriah sexually. He did all these things, and sex is not mentioned one time in this entire chapter. Because God knows that there's something deeper. And so, our Jesus wants to heal our heart, but he's going to have to do it by hurting it a bit more first. So it's not for the faint at heart. Now, we're going to see next week that Jesus heals our heart from sin by moving us, it's going to move us from where we are to where we need to be. Today, this week, we're just feeling the tension of where our shame leaves us. Next week, we get to the root of where our sin leaves us. And by getting to the root, like my son's arm, our guilt and our shame can be healed. You do not want to miss next week. Man, listen to me. If you struggled with guilt and shame, and I'm guessing if you're breathing, you've struggled with guilt and shame. As the singers come up, I want you to listen to me. We're going to dive into this. But I want to point out one thing before we go. David can ask God for mercy. He can, ask, he can ask God for mercy on the basis of two things. And we see it in uh, verses 1 and 2. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Listen to me. According to your unfailing love... In other words, he bases his request on this fundamental truth about God, his unfailing love. You know, my kids ask me for stuff based on something. They say this to me. They go, Papi, can I have, my kids call me Papi. I'm Puerto Rican, so the, we don't do the daddy thing. But we go, Papi, Papi, can I have that toy and I'll say something like, no, that's not what we came for. 
and then they'll go on a basis. You know what they'll say? But you have the money. <laughs> of course. When you have the riches, they expect the generosity. We can go to God. And in your heart and mind, there's a liar that says, no. Papi. so bad. I've done so much wrong. Have mercy on me. And Jesus responds, I have unfailing love. I have riches that you cannot contain. And he has it for every one of us. I'm talking about the really sinful, like me. I'm talking about the really broken. I'm talking about the ones that are here that go look back on the sins that you committed and you go, what were you thinking? How could you have done? I don't even know how I could have done that. He goes, have mercy on me according to your never failing, never stopping, always present, never giving up, always and forever love. According to that, I got, listen, I got no promises to bring. He's not coming to God going, God, I'll do better. God, I'm going to clean myself up. Watch. I'm going to do better. I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to make myself right. God, you'll see. You'll see. I'm going to go to church. I'm not going to smoke again. I'm not going to drink again. I'm not going to shoot up again. I'm not going to cheat again. I'm not going to lie again. I'm not going to steal again. I'm not going to act out again. I'm not. God, you'll see. I'm going to. No, 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 no. It's not according to my unfailing goodness. It's according to God's unfailing failing love and that's why losers like me could have confidence confidence that he could give what we do not deserve and the reason that he could give what we do not deserve is because he was given what he did not deserve Jesus, the reason that God can give us unfailing love is because Jesus took on unmitigated wrath. The story of the cross, the story of the Bible is simply this, that there is a God who saw our sin and said, I cannot live without you and for my glory's sake I will take on the guilt and the shame that you deserve so you could take on the relationship and the love that I deserve it's for you it's even for me according to your unfailing love so class what did we learn today that sin is not primarily the breaking of God's law, it's a breaking of God's heart. And when we sin, 
what we're saying under that sin is I know what is best for me better than God and I want what is best for me better than God. But we have a basis by which we can come to God with and that's his unfailing love, his great compassion. My prayer for you is that you would receive that. Now, you might have questions. Well, Ed, how do I receive that unfailing love? How do I appropriate? I, listen, I could believe that God could forgive me, but my problem is, is that I can't forgive me. Listen to me. If you need the solution to that, you got to come next week. And we're going to share and we're going to break that down. But here's what I want you to do. Listen to me. Don't you dare. Don't you dare leave here and think that there's no hope for you. I'm telling you, there's hope. Even for people like me, there's hope. So, so what you're going to do is you're going to come back next week. Not only are you going to come back next week, you're going to invite a friend because you know plenty of people who are walking around with shame and guilt. I'm going to talk about how we can all be liberated, not in a fake way. Not in a, don't worry, the arm will heal, just leave it alone way. But in a, there's some real surgery that needs to be done way. And this is going to hurt, but in the end, God is going to be glorified.